Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and we are here with our first episode of the brand new year. It's 2022, and we're all looking forward to a year without disaster. Oh, wait a minute. That already <laughs> didn't happen. Um and as you can hear from the laughter in the background, our co-host Sam Bradley has joined us. Hey, Sam. Jamie, we wouldn't have a job if there wasn't any disasters. Come on now. You know, we kind of depend on those. Not that that we, we would wish them on anyone. But speaking of which, our oldest ongoing disaster is uh, Mr. COVID. And we got Dr. Joe. Uh, maybe he can give us an update on what's going on with I it. don't think it's nice to say Joe is our oldest known disaster. I, At the disaster, yeah, I not Joe. Actually, I like it, actually. Talking about COVID, not Joe. Uh, I kind of like, like it. I'm good with it. Oh, well, you're... Resemble that remark. <laughs> you're well-adjusted, so that's fine. <laughs> so, what is fluorona? Joe. Well, Fluorona is uh, the colloquial name given to uh, folks who test positive for both the the uh, COVID nineteen as well as the one of the influenzas. So uh, they're uh, twice as lucky and uh, likely to be pretty sick. That would truly suck. So that it would. They they have two two very different viruses. They don't interact with each other, but you can get them at the same time, right? That is correct. Gee, what fun. Well, uh, I was going to mention, most of you know, I work with a disaster response agency that is uh, contracted with the state of Louisiana, and they have a COVID camp. Uh, There's about 100 FEMA trailers, and and folks, when they show up in shelters or whatever and and, and turn positive, they ship them out there for the duration. So we have to keep medical staff out there to take care of them until they don't test positive anymore. And Christmas Day, um, I get kind of a panic call. We have to put in another position by tomorrow. Uh, What? (laughs) You know, disasters don't care about timing. They don't care about holidays. But apparently these people were going into these uh, warming shelters and getting checked for COVID. And it's like, oh, my God, now they're sending them all to us. So we ended up having to put in two more positions. So for for the next week and a half, I was working, you know, 14-hour days trying to keep up with all of that. So, gee, what fun that was. Now we're kind of in a, well, which way is the population going to go? Are we going to end up having to downsize? I'm thinking with the flu added on to that, that it's probably not going to go away anytime soon. But what do you think, Joe? Well, I, I would have to agree with you. Uh, the uh, the Omicron variant <laughs> is uh, growing at an alarming rate. Um, my numbers here in Memphis for um, it's uh, posit- new positive, oh, no, that's not correct. Um, uh, newly admitted adults, ICU admitted adults, newly admitted pediatrics have all doubled in six days and pediatric intensive care admissions are up 50% in that six same six days. Ouch. We are currently very close to the 
peak hospitalization numbers we saw during Delta. And we've gotten there literally in a quarter of the time it took for Delta to get there. And uh, we're definitely not going to stop there. I think we will uh, we'll break our record by a solid 25%, I expect. So Ouch. This, this weekend and next week are going to be very ugly. Well, I get that sense. Uh, two of our people are down there, and they've been so busy, I haven't even heard. I just now got a call from one of them. Uh, They've been so busy, I don't even know what's going on. So I can only guess that the population is, is exploding again. So I'll have to find that out after uh, this podcast and see what happens. But, yeah, I, I can't imagine in any other way, Joe. It's pretty scary. It, um, it is indeed. You know, mm-hmm. thankfully, they're, they're, the, the intensive care admissions are not what they were. The death rate is not what it was. But, you know, I, I have great concerns about the fact that um, – hospitals are so overwhelmed with moderately sick patients that if you happen to get sick from something else and you know you're you struggle to find some medical care in a fairly short period of time um that's going to make things a lot worse for you very quickly so uh, Mm -hmm. i think there's there's just lots of layers and unexpected uh effects and ripple effects from overwhelming the healthcare system, particularly in a very short period of time where there's just very little reaction time. I can only imagine. One more question from me. Uh, I'm hearing things about CDC maybe changing the isolation guidelines. What do you know about that? Yeah, CDC has uh, has changed their recommendations to a five-day isolation period and and then uh, okay to return to work if you're symptom free, and then five days in a mask. It's a, it, it's an interesting um, strategy, uh, and I, you know I think it's being driven by a couple of things. It, it certainly looks like in the Omicron variant that people are infectious sooner, and are usually, for the majority of patients, um, at five days, they don't tend to be very uh, infective uh, after that point for the majority of people. There's obviously a few that continue to be infective for a full 10 days, thus the mask warning. But I think the um, the other part of that equation that seems to be rolling into that now is that um, the workforce has been uh, hammered pretty hard, and particularly related to the healthcare workforce, where we've seen more absenteeism from work um, in the last two weeks than we saw, you know, almost at any time during the past year. Uh, so I think I think they're trying to balance the idea of if you're not. Um, symptomatic, you're pretty unlikely to be infectious and therefore you can come on back to work because we really need you at work. Uh, and so that's, I, I, you know, I think that's kind of where they're trying to go with it to not keep people out of work as long, but try to still have a fair amount of margin of safety for um, continued uh, infectiousness. Yeah, funny you should mention that. I lost one of my people today because a lot of them work for the local ambulance company, and one of them turned up with COVID this morning. Well, I yep. can't do my shift in two days, so I'm, I'm hoping that's not going to be a thing. Jamie, thoughts or comments? 
Yeah, and, and I think that this is an interesting lesson in the fact that, that public health doesn't, while we talk about dealing with the science and and following the science and things like that, um, that public health also deals with the social science side of things. And compliance with, with directives is just as important as, you know, coming up with directives that are supported by science um, itself. And if, if, you know, if you give somebody a, a direction that they're not going to follow, um, you need to come up with something that's going to work for, for more people. Um, and get better compliance and come up with some rules that'll work. I, I think this is an, a perfect example of that um, from a public health perspective of coming up with something, coming up with a solution that will staff facilities and, and essential workforce um, also give other people um, a, something that's uh, a little more palatable. I mean, even half compliance is better than no compliance. And you know, there, I think that there's something to be said for that. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, I think that's uh, exactly correct. You know, you you, uh, you can have all the recommendations you want, and if nobody's willing to follow them, then they're useless. Um, you know, we continue to struggle, I think, with pretty inconsistent governmental response uh, and direction, particularly at various state levels and that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, playing in the, the social side of this, uh, people need to get back to work. And the healthcare system needs them to be at work uh, to be able to to take care of business uh, has certainly made it challenging. And and I heard an interesting uh, report in the last 24 hours about um, some some folks in the know, quote unquote, whatever that means, um, are sort of beginning to have this conversation around um, COVID is just going to be the new normal and it's just going to be there. And I don't disagree with that argument. I, I think it will at some point settle down and be like the flu, but it's not like the flu right now. <laughs> it's, it, you know, it, it spreads so quickly and it overwhelms our ability to respond to it so quickly that that is not like the flu. At some point in the next few months, we hope, or few years maybe, you know, there'll be enough folks that have either had had the illness, have died from it, or have been vaccinated from it that it will indeed settle down to a dull roar. I don't think it'll ever go away, but it'll at least be at a manageable level where we can move on with our lives and deal with it and get work done and all that other kind of stuff. So I think that's another example of kind of balancing the social realities to the epidemiological and population-based medical science uh, around trying to do that. You know, there's just some things that aren't practical and are, are not going to work without 100% compliance. So We've got a way to go before we uh, reach a new normal, I think. Omicron, the flu on steroids. <laughs> Dan, did you have a thought on this? Yeah, I was just going to mention, too. I mean, I think from, you know, from any type of setting, healthcare, as Joe was talking about, from, from us, you know, from a 
operational forecasting standpoint are really so many industries right now are are, are impacted by the, the the rapid spread of, of sickness and even people aren't aren't very ill which in many cases they're not which is good um, but they're out for a time or they can't come into the office or they have to take a day or two off and it, it, it's causing ripple effect across the entire economy in many sectors um, and I know in Pennsylvania I was just reading that we have we have the lowest amount of ICU beds available now, of any point during the pandemic, only 12.7% or 449 adult ICU beds are available in Pennsylvania. Ouch. Yeah, that's that's actually pretty common in many states right now, including my own. And uh, I think we are um, far from the peak utilization. I don't mean far in, in terms of time. I think far in terms of what that ultimate number is going to be. Um, it's probably going to, you know, go up another 25% from where it is now. So I, I think we're going to see some real strain on the healthcare system in the next uh, two weeks. Uh, so I shouldn't be planning on downsizing. <laughs> Miss Becky, what are you thinking? I mean, I think Joe made a lot of good points tonight. I, as Omicron has evolved, I think we've seen a lot of people saying, you know, sort of sort of giving up, I guess. You know, in one hand, you can't really blame them because this is just absurd that we're still here. Um, <clears throat> but I, I, still don't, I still don't think the right approach is to just sort of shrug it off and just say, well, let me just try and get it because then it'll just be over with. Like, I don't I still think we should be trying to not get it and trying to keep other people safe. And really the measures to do that are quite simple. You wear a really good mask, and I've seen a lot of good guidance in the past couple of weeks on what a good mask is. Um, maybe we can throw some links in, I don't know. Um, I just, I, it sucks, it sucks that we're here, but I think we should still do everything we can to protect ourselves and protect those around us. Yep, Jamie, you can do that. Yeah, I'll make sure we got some, there are some good links out there um, because there are some issues with some counterfeit um, um, N95 masks. And um, there's a couple of sites that have come out that um, are providing some consumer direction on where, how to identify good quality masks on the marketplace. So we'll, um, I'll, I'll provide that for you. Oh, there's yeah, somebody, that, Becky found it for me. Yeah, good. Becky found one. You know, I've seen some really stupid masks. I mean, like just, it's like having a piece of cellophane, cellophane, lying in front of your face, but the virus can go up and in and around it. It's like, you know, I want to stop people in the grocery store and say, can we talk? Because <laughs> yeah. this ain't working. Okay, moving on. Moving on. Uh, this week in weather disasters, and thank God we got the DePod ones here. Uh, Becky, let's, you know, you're a, an old Colorado girl. Well, you're not old. I am, but you're not. The Marshall Fire, that's kind of what started things out with us. Now, I've, I've done a little research on that, and, and they are very aggressively trying to figure out whether this started. Obviously, the 100-mile-an-hour winds were a factor, but how did it start? And there's some speculation there was some burning shed on some religious sect property. Well, that's yet to be seen. But nonetheless, uh, very quickly, um, there were tens of thousands evacuated. And those winds went up to 105 miles an hour and down power lines and made it all worse. What do you think, Bex? I know you've done some research on this. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different topics within this this topic. Oh but the one I'll God. start with is 
this was a long time in coming. Um, I have a friend, Becky uh, Bollinger. She's the assistant state climatologist of for Colorado. Um, and she was talking a lot about the drought conditions in Colorado that contributed to this. But what I found really interesting is that Colorado had a very wet spring in 2021, which caused a lot of the grasses to grow. And then they had a very dry summer and fall and all the grasses that were had just grown a whole bunch, they dried out. And that's just, that's kindling, that's fuel for the fire. So you have all these dry conditions, you have record setting hot temperatures, and then you have downsloping winds. And of course, whatever the cause was, something got lit somewhere. <laughs> Who knows if it was a down power line or arson or whatever it may be, but like something caught fire and the winds spread it so quickly. Some of the videos that I saw coming out of like Boulder, Superior, Louisville were, were absolutely terrifying. Um, the one other thing that I'll touch on briefly with this, which I think is an interesting component given a lot of the topics that we discuss here on the show, is that there seemed to have been a lack of notification. Um, many people reported to have never received a wireless emergency alert for this. Um, so it's actually a pretty amazing thing that so many people were able to evacuate. And thus far, the only fatality that's come out of this is someone who was near the origin site of the fire. Um, there's a lot of factors that probably went into to it, you know, people being home, people being pretty aware of their surroundings, of seeing the smoke, um, a lot of escape networks uh, in the roads. But just a really interesting situation. I think one that probably the the local emergency managers are studying. Um, but it also does come on the heels of the shooting last fall, I believe. And the, there was a supermarket in Boulder that yep. um, had a mass shooting. So uh, unfortunately, the, the emergency managers in this area have dealt with quite a lot um, in the past couple of months. And, you know, this could have been a lot worse. Um, a lot of homes were lost, but thankfully very minimal um, casualties. Yeah, if for a long time they didn't think there was any casualties, but last I heard there were three people still unaccounted for and they couldn't get mm -hmm. to them because of the heat coming off the fires. Um, but this thing went across three cities, burnt a thousand homes, and again, I don't know what the status is on those three people. So we didn't get, you know, get away from the nastiness there. And I think something like 1,200. We're without power, so it's, and then all of a sudden they get ten inches of snow, which I guess is a good thing, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, it's still not great for the cleanup efforts. Uh, but it, how weird really is that? In December, you go from a fire that you usually see in, you know, the summer to this, followed by an immediate winter. So, so Jamie, we're I'm getting comments all the place here. Dan, you had a thought. <laughs> Everybody wants in on this one. Dan? Yeah, I was just going to mention, so like we're focused on Colorado here and for good reason because of this, because of this event. But Becky and I were talking about this, and we've seen these types of events. Obviously, they're more common out west where there's typically drier weather. We obviously have a pretty ongoing long-term drought in a lot of the western United States. But these types of wildfires can happen really in a lot of parts of the United States and, and other parts of the world for that matter. But specifically about the United States, there's a lot of research being done and, and information out there on what's called the urban wildland interface, which yep. is where, I, I, it, you know, which is where basically you have people that have built um, and it's close to where you have a lot of 
um, either grasses or, or trees or whatever it is or fuel to burn. Um, and this is common all across the country. In fact, a lot of the Northeast is built within this interface. And so that is a pretty uh, sobering thought. Now, the Northeast is a place that's much wetter. It doesn't have as much drought. But, if, but you can envision a situation where if there is a prolonged drought in a place like the Northeast and you get the right conditions, something like this could happen. And I think the idea that you know, it, it fires only happen in places that are dry and don't have a lot of trees is not true. Uh, look at the uh, Gatlinburg fire in Tennessee. That was just that devastated the entire town several years ago. Uh, places like the Pine, the Pine Barrens in uh, southern New Jersey are also really are really prone. So just something to keep in mind that this is not just a Western phenomenon that really anywhere you live, you should be thinking about whether you're in a prone environment and be have, and, you know, and have a plan in place. Good point. Jamie? Yeah, well, I mean, we here in Maryland and, and certainly up into Pennsylvania and around this area, we have lots of developments that are built right into the woods. Um, and, you know, when we've had brush fire situations come up, I was thinking about as I was watching the news covering the Colorado fire, I was thinking, you know, God forbid we have any kind of major brush fire crop up at the right time of the year um, coupled with high winds. Um because it would sweep right into some of these developments very quickly. Um, and, you know, the right, so it's just really for want of the right conditions, correct? Dan, you want to address that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You have to have the right conditions. And, I mean, th- th- there's been fires like in the, in southern New Jersey and the Pine Barrens. That that happens on a fairly regular basis. There's not been a big one. There's a, there's a couple of really scary articles if that are out there. Maybe I can dig one up and find one. Um, about sort of the, the disaster scenario for the Pine Barrens in New Jersey. And yeah, you have the right scenario. We get a lot of wind in the east. Uh, it's not as localized as it is in Colorado, but right conditions and anything that is you know, lit for some reason, and whether it be arson or down power lines, um, it can unfortunately turn bad very quickly. I, I think there's like paranormal activity in the Pine Barrens, isn't there? <laughs> I saw a show about that. Yeah, well, that's another topic. Um, so Dan, while we're on the East coast with you, um, talk about that ice situation yesterday. Yeah, it's been quite the week in the East, right? We had the major snow event on, on Monday to start the new year, basically in parts of Virginia, which was just a disaster for for people on I-95 there in Virginia, where it snowed quickly and caused a whole bunch of problems with people stuck on the road for nearly a day in some cases. And then we had, uh, which was, I, I'm not sure, it depends on where you were in my, but the Virginia event may, may, may have overshadowed it, but a pretty minimal in terms of amount of ice, but very high impact event. We see these a lot of times in the winter with these events that uh, there's not a lot of accumulation of ice, but it comes in at the wrong time. The ground is really cold. It was a cold day or two preceding the event. And this was basically from northern New Jersey through the Hudson Valley into parts of Long Island and southern Connecticut, where over the course of about 5 to 8 or 9 a.m. in the morning, there was just a little bit. It only took you know a few hundredths of an inch to maybe a tenth of an inch of precipitation, which fell as rain, and the ground was below freezing. And all of a sudden, you had just ice everywhere, numerous accidents. Unfortunately, there were uh, at least one that I saw fatality. Um, and th- this time of year... Well, and well, not even this time of year, but in, in, in a situation where we haven't had a lot of winter weather, there has not been a lot of treatment on the roads in terms of salt and other things that they used to treat. So the roads don't have treatment on them in, in many cases. So later in the winter, sometimes these events are less of a problem because there's treatment that's already down from previous events. But in this case, there really has been nothing in the east uh, so far in the northeast. 
And, and this just came in at the wrong time during a rush hour time period. And, uh, doesn't take much when you have rain falling onto a frozen surface to freeze up and make it things a skating rink. And we actually have to worry about this type of thing again on Sunday morning in places like central Pennsylvania, Southern New York, uh, maybe as far East as I 95 from DC to New York as well. So we'll have to watch that on Sunday morning. Yeah, and I want to talk more about that. But Dan, can you just kind of reflect on the storm that hit us and, oh my God, it went all the way across the country? Um, <laughs> I, I couldn't keep track of yeah. all of it. Yeah, because you have had two there, Sam, right? Yeah. Last, uh, we had days like there. two yeah. days of a break and then we got hit again yesterday. And that, that was nasty. That was a big dump. So I think we got another eight inches out of that on top of what we already had. Yeah, yeah, there's been a couple of these uh, quick-moving storms across the country in the last uh, five days or so. The one uh, that we were, that I was mentioning earlier ended up uh, hitting the East Coast on, on, on Monday, dumped very quickly six to ten inches of snow in D.C. Um, and, and south in Fredericksburg, Virginia, where they had 14 inches of snow, and that's what caused the massive issues on uh, I-95 there where they had uh, just people stuck for over a day in their cars because basically what happened is the snow fell so quickly that people – you know, the plows couldn't clear it. And then the temperature dropped in the afternoon and anything that was slushy froze. And so it was basically a sheet of ice and you couldn't get off the highway. Um, that's another reason to make sure you're prepared. I'll let others talk about the preparedness for those types of situations. Um, and so, so that was a pretty quick hitting. Again, these aren't long lasting storms, but they come in quickly with heavy snowfall rates. It's not always about the amount of snowfall that falls, but it's about the, the rate at which it falls. The same thing happened then today, the storm that you just mentioned, Sam, that gave you a lot of snow, uh, quickly moved into the Tennessee Valley and dumped somewhere between six and nine inches of snow in Nashville. It's one of the biggest storms in five or six years, I think, in Nashville. Same type of issues down there today with a lot of uh, snow on the, you know, just snow causing a lot of travel troubles. And that's moving up the East Coast here Thursday night into Friday, and that's going to cause a widespread swath of three to six inches of snow from Philadelphia through Boston and potential for six to nine inches of snow in Boston. Um, and that's going to cause, again, a very significant issue in the morning commute on Friday, uh, eastern Long Island into southern New England. Well, I'm so glad we could share with Tennessee and all of you on the East Coast. You can have it. But, yeah, reflecting on that I-95, I looked a little bit at that. Uh, this thing was 48 miles long because of one jackknife truck. Now, I don't know all of the logistics of that, but if you can imagine these people sitting there that don't have water, don't have food, they're trying to turn their heaters on, but they're running out of gas, they're trying to stay warm, they can't go to the bathroom because there are, is none, People were getting angry. They're, they're, you know, pushing out social media. Well, there's nothing anybody can do about that. There were some people that talked about being just in front of the exit, like 100 feet, but they couldn't back up to the exit until somebody came along and removed that snow, which they finally did a day later. And it was interesting, too, that there was a senator on his way to uh, D.C. who was caught up in this, so... I'm kind of hoping he, he gets a little more proactive about uh, these kinds of things. So that's what I took out of it. Um, what did you hear, Jamie? Anything else? Um, just, you know, just looking at the, the people that had to, you know, there were some truckers that had um, supplies in their, their trucks because they sleep in their trucks, the long-haul truckers do. And so there were some of them that were providing water and, and some food to some of the cars around them. 
Um, there were some situations where um, there was a bakery truck from Baltimore that was on um, I-95 and had 700 loaves of bread that it ended Yay. up giving out. So, um, you know, there's, there are, it just, it just points out that you really need to have some basic things in your car, summer, winter, fall, doesn't matter. If you keep, if you keep some basic things in your vehicle, some, some protein bars, some, you know, bottled water, you know, change it out periodically, but, you know, always have some in there because if something like this happens, even if it were to happen in, in the summertime, if there's a major backup because of a, a major motor vehicle accident due to fog or anything like that, um, you can be stuck in a similar backup for hours and hours and hours and need to, you know, have some food supplies. So it's not just a winter storm event for sure. And we'll be hearing more stories on this. I heard some lady had a couple bags of oranges she was bringing home from from Florida, and she was running around sharing all these oranges with everybody. So that's always the upside of these stories is how people compensate and help each other. I, I heard about one woman that really was thirsty, but she was afraid to drink any water for fear of that water recycling. <laughs> and where was that going to happen? But I guess people were doing what they needed to do in that case. So, you know, it's nice to hear that human side of things. And Becky, you you mentioned you gave us a link here. Um, did Colorado create a new record with this fire? This very fast fire? Um, that's a good question. Dan, do you know off the top of your head? I do not. I'll look that one I up. have. Let me reopen. I just closed some tabs. Um, there's a really good article that I know that was written by a um, a colleague, um, Bob Henson, for the Yale Climate Connection. So let me post that because it has a lot of really, really good information about what led to this fire from a climate standpoint. I know there were a bunch of um, record high temperatures that went into this. The fire itself obviously was only 6,200 acres, which in Colorado scale is not very large, but obviously did destroy a lot of structures. Well, you guys are putting up some great links. Uh, Jamie has one on, on good survival techniques. Um, you know, you ought to pay attention to those because it could happen to you. So hopefully we'll see all these links uh, on the podcast. Oh, so, yes, it was Colorado's most destructive wildfire on record, obviously because the majority are in the mountains where, thankfully, there are minimal structures. Um, so yeah, there you have it. Well, in this case, thank you for the snow. Um, Joe, what are you thinking? How are things going down there in Tennessee with all of this? Well, we've, uh, we got a dusting of snow here, uh, and bitterly cold temperatures tonight, but Nashville had a record snowfall of seven or eight inches and, uh, other places north of there, um, up beyond a foot. Uh, of snowfall. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, while I don't know specifically how bad places like Mayfield, Kentucky got hit, I, I think a lot about those folks uh, who oh, yeah. had their community devastated a couple of weeks ago and now are uh, having to deal with a, you know, a winter storm in the middle of all that. Uh, good point. Yeah, I thought I saw an article on that too. Yeah, you just, you just can't win. And of course, in, when those things happen in December, which rarely ever happens, but this is what you get. Jamie, thoughts? Yeah, I was just going to ask um, maybe Dan or Becky to chime in. Um, 
obviously it's not peak tornado season in parts of the U.S., but it's not unheard of to get that kind of severe weather um, as fronts move across the country. Um, is, is that something that we should be thinking about as well? I mean, as we do, I guess we should all the time, right? Don't say that word, Jamie. You're going to make it happen. Dan? I guess, Becky, do you want to go first? And Any thoughts on that? I I mean, it's one of those things that's, you know, somewhat connected to the changing climate, you know, as temperatures are generally a bit warmer um, at, at different points throughout the year, you're going to have the conditions come together in a way like we saw in December. Um, and and we've said, you know, even even before, even a decade, two decades ago, tornadoes can happen at any time of year. It, the seasons don't particularly matter. There are times in in the year that the conditions are going to be a lot more favorable but really if you are in pretty much any part of the central US <laughs> anywhere in the central time zone anywhere in I mean anywhere really but you know what I'm saying tornado alley the southeast the ohio valley just just have that plan in place so would it be safe to say there is no such thing as tornado season there is no such thing as hurricane season there is no such thing as wildfire season. Uh, that's all kind of get gotten blown to hell, right? <laughs> I, I mean, seasons are, are arbitrary things that arbitrary calendar dates that humans place on things because we like we like that, right? Um, it's 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 a way to keep stats. It's a way to you know keep records. I don't know, if Dan, you have any other thoughts? Yeah, I, I I think yeah, I mean there there are certainly times of the year. I think each of those threats you mentioned, Sam, are sort of different, right? Hurricanes almost always the ones that really impact people almost always in the Atlantic Basin occur between June one and November thirtieth. Can there be storms outside of that time frame? Yes. Do they usually do much? No. Um, tornadoes can occur any time of year, but they're but they by far are most prevalent between late February and mid June. Um, but then, and there's a second peak again in, in November, basically, and 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 early December. Um, January is usually a pretty quiet month. Doesn't mean it can't happen, um, it, but it's usually confined to the Gulf Coast. Uh, but anytime you get warm, moist air drawn north with tornadoes, uh, you can you can get them. I think that you know people always ask whether climate change is influencing these types of events, and it's hard to say with tornadoes specifically whether climate change is influencing like one specific tornado or whether that tornado would, would or would not have occurred without climate change. But I think what we can say pretty definitively is there's more opportunities outside of the typical season for tornado events to occur because there's more opportunities for warm, moist air to be drawn northward, as happened in mid-December. The Gulf of Mexico is way above normal, and that helped us fuel those tornadoes in, in December. And then with wildfires, that has become more of a year-round phenomenon out west, which is um, – not something that uh, was sort of the case before, but now it's really a, a year-round thing. And uh, again, there, it's more prevalent at certain times of the year. But um, yeah, I, I think people need to prepare for these things at 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 at, at any time, really. Yeah, great point on that, Dan. Uh, Jamie, did you have another question? No, I think that was my question mark in the chat oh, okay. from the previous question. But good good eye on that, though, keeping up with what's going on. Well, I think uh, we're going to get kicked off here because we've reached our limit. So, Dan, you have any final thoughts on all of this? <laughs> we've covered everything well, in the world. 
we, yeah, we, we, we've talked about almost every hazard imaginable. <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I, I guess we didn't cover flooding or, or the non weather, but, but, but natural hazards like earthquakes, tsunamis and stuff. We can do that some other time. Um, but I, I, I think as we head through the winter, right, this is, you know, we're only in January. We have at least two months of, of winter weather to go across a lot of the country. Uh. And, uh, especially in places that haven't seen a lot of winter weather this year or haven't seen a lot of winter weather generally is just, be prepared for snowy, slippery roads and cold conditions and, and look up what to do in those types of situations so you don't be unprepared when uh, something happens and check the forecast on a regular basis you know, to make sure you're aware of what's coming. Good point. Becky? Just say check the forecast before you leave. Check the road conditions before you leave. <laughs> so many of these accidents would be avoided if people took just five minutes before they head out the door to see, you know, what are the road conditions like? Um, you know, plan ahead. If you just check the forecast the night before, if it, you know, says it's going to be snow or ice, maybe take that into account and give yourself extra time. I don't know. Um, and then obviously just really make sure you have some just basics in your car, a blanket, a shovel, maybe a little bit of rock salt, some non-perishables, some water. You just never know when you're going to find yourself in a very uncomfortable situation like those on I-95 did. And there's apps for that. I have a couple of them that tell you everything from accidents to slowdowns to, you know, major incidents. Joe, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, I think uh, so far 2022 has been quite a roller coaster, and um, <laughs> we haven't gotten to the uh, not even a weekend hardly. Yeah, the crazy <laughs> roller coaster part yet. So uh, hang on for uh, at, at least the next few weeks are likely to be pretty crazy between uh, uh, COVID pandemics and uh, crazy weather. You betcha. Jamie, I think we need to go back, you know, to remind people about preparedness, because I think uh, certainly those people on the I-95 are much more aware. In fact, there was even an Amtrak train that got stopped because of this. So and uh, they had a restroom issue, if I remember correctly. So you just never know. Yeah, it's 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 um you know I, I it comes back to preparedness and resilience, and we talk about that all the time on the show. You know, people that are listening, a vast majority of our our audience are responders themselves. Um, but I always like to point out that you know a responder can become a a victim um, to these situations quickly, just like anybody else. If you know they don't have, they may not be at work and get stuck somewhere on the way back from a trip or, you know, with their family. And so it, it, it really, you need to remember that just because you're a responder doesn't mean it can't happen to you too. So be prepared, be resilient, make sure that you are able to take care of yourself and your family um, appropriately, whether it's at home, in your car, wherever that may be. Um, and and um, that kind of preparedness is, is incumbent uh, upon us even when we're not on the job. So... That's something to keep in mind. Um, I do want to call out, um, we are entering our ninth year here for the Disaster Podcast. And um, I want to thank Dr. Joe and Paragon Medical Education Group for all the support for the last nine years or eight years going into nine years now. That, um, wow, it's it's just scary, been, huh, Becky? <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's pretty amazing. And, and I just want to thank Joe for the support and um, the idea of to really put this show together and, and, and put it out there. 
So, um, folks, um, Joe, where can folks find out more about what you guys have been doing for the last nine years, um, you know, putting together the excellent training and customizable resources for disaster preparedness um, situations that you guys do? Well, thanks, Jamie. I, I, I appreciate the kind words. Obviously, uh, all, all of this is very much a labor of love for all of us. So uh, I'm very pleased to be able to contribute in whatever way I can. Uh, in regards to training, we've uh, got some upcoming stuff with the military that's beginning to pick up again, but uh, we would certainly like to utilize our special skills and capabilities to put together uh, training programs for anybody and everybody. So reach out and uh, get in touch with us through uh, the web at paragonmedicalgroup.com or on Facebook at Paragon Medical Group, or you can always reach us at the Disaster Podcast or the Disaster Podcast Facebook page. And we have people all over the world to listen to this show, so you do you do need to know that just because Joe's based in Tennessee doesn't mean that he can't take the training resources and some of the things they do internationally. So if you yeah. want to get some of that specialized training that he provides to people like the Amer- uh, U.S. military, um, you know you can get access to that through what Joe offers. So take advantage of it, right, Joe? Absolutely. We'll be in Arizona next month. Woohoo! Excellent. Um, no snow. <laughs> no snow. <laughs> hey, Becky, uh, where can folks find you and what you're up to? Yeah, folks can find me over on Twitter at WX underscore Bex. Um, on LinkedIn at Becky. Uh, actually, I'm Rebecca DePodman on LinkedIn, trying to be fancy. Um, <laughs> and then the Disaster Podcast Facebook group. Excellent. How about you, Dan? You can find me on Twitter at WX Depot, D-E-P-O. Also on LinkedIn with my name, Dan DePodwin, in the Disaster Podcast Facebook group as well. Great. And Sam? In all of the above places, under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11. What about you, Podmedic? Yeah, that's right. Under the handle Podmedic in most social media locations. And actually, dangerously enough, I downloaded TikTok the other day. And, oh, um, no. <laughs> I'm thinking about starting up just doing random dad jokes on TikTok. So if you want to look me up there, it's <laughs> at Podmedic on TikTok eventually. I'll probably put something out this weekend um anyway uh i just can't resist you know it's another social media channel and i've got to own the own the pod medic on every one so that's the way that works um but good episode sam i'm glad we were able to pull this together i know you've been just swamped busy with all the stuff you've been doing helping with the covid surge in louisiana well you do what you got to do it's it's disasters come in many forms um uh, that's a whole different podcast, but yes, they are. Um, I think the message is coming out from today's podcast. As Becky was saying, pay attention to what's going on before you go there. Look at road conditions, look at weather, all those kinds of things. And as Dan was saying, be prepared. You know, James is going to put a good link in there in terms of stuff you should have all the time in your car. It's changed seasonally. But be prepared. You never know that you might someday end up on the I-95. So be prepared and take care of yourselves. 